With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. If you are interested in attending the Outlook 2023 Agribusiness Conference, taking place later this month, March 27th through the 30th, there's only a few days left to register without having to pay late fees. Now, this event, again, is three days, and it will cover water, almonds, pistachios, as well as all things related to ag business. You'll also get a first-hand look at the latest trends in ag land and lease values report. Also taking place during this event are educational courses and special events. There will be guest speakers. You can take a look at the 2023 program sessions and schedule of events by visiting calasfmra.com. Again, more details can be found by visiting calasfmra.com. And now let's get into today's show headlines. Tariffs are still impacting agricultural producers. There's not much chatter around the tariffs that were put in place on agricultural products back during the Trump administration. But Richard Montoyan, president of American Pistachio Growers, says duties are still in place and are having lingering impacts on ag commodities such as California-grown nuts. Yeah, so tariffs are still in place in in the countries that they were implemented. Uh, So it wasn't just China. There were tariffs put in India. Uh, There had been proposed tariffs uh, that were going to go into effect in the EU. Fortunately, they did not. Uh, But the tariffs that have been in place remain in place. Uh, We need to get those resolved because it does have an impact on the cost of goods, especially when we're competing with other countries uh, that grow that same product and can get to those same destinations without the tariff. And now here's Brian German with more Ag News. The State Water Resources Control Board easing restrictions on Delta pumping comes as good news for growers. President and CEO of the California Cotton Ginners and Growers Association, Roger Isom, said the move presents a good opportunity to build up water storage supplies. To put it simply, it relaxes some of the restrictions in the Delta that have limited pumping, especially it was really damaging this this year when we had, you know, we were at flood stage throughout the state and we were literally limping along in terms of pumping water out of the Delta and putting it in storage. The good news is, you know, we're going to, those uh, restrictions are going to be relaxed. We're going to be able to pump more water and hopefully help with those numbers and again, get some water into the groundwater through recharge projects, get some water in storage and just help the overall outlook for, you know, cities and farms and, and everybody that needs water. This is a this is a good move, especially at a time when you have excess water like we have right now. Be interesting to see how long that they stay this way. Can we capture a lot during the spring runoff, which we're hoping is gonna be a, a good runoff year? As trees have been coming out of dormancy earlier in the year than historical averages, researchers are looking to better understand some of their chill requirements. Tree breeder and associate professor at UC Davis, Pat Brown said that as climate changes are gradually causing chill to go away, it's simplistically seen as a problem where trees are not meeting their chill needs and they just need to reduce that requirement. All that is true, but I think we need to be careful because this is an adaptive mechanism by which trees choose when to wake up, the optimal time to wake up in the spring, not too soon, not too late. And so what we're trying to do is get a more sort of nuanced understanding 
of how that response works so that we can develop new varieties that are going to be robust to whatever the climate throws at them in the coming years and decades. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, the National Farmers Union is meeting this week in San Francisco for its annual convention. A top issue this year is the Farm Bill. In a few president, Rob LaRue. It's hard to talk about any of the issues confronting agriculture. Now, talking about the Farmers Union's Fairness for Farmers campaign, a campaign that is really trying to lift up and show folks exactly what the kind of the monopolization of agriculture is facing. This is everything from right to repair to making sure that we have better cattle markets to make sure that farmers are getting fair prices, that there's truth in labeling. Part of this, of course, is also with an eye toward the next farm bill. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack spoke at the meeting on Monday and met with ag reporters after. He was asked about an announcement from the Office of the United States Trade Representative that it is requesting technical consultations with the government of Mexico under the Sanitary and Phytosanitary Measures Chapter of the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. These consultations regard certain Mexican measures concerning products of agricultural biotechnology. In that statement, Ambassador Catherine Tai said the United States has repeatedly conveyed serious concerns with Mexico's biotechnology policies and the importance of adopting a science-based approach that complies with its USMCA commitments. Here's Secretary Vilsack. There have been a variety of decrees that have come from Mexico. I think the, 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 the underlying issue here is uh, the, the need for uh, our relationship with Mexico to be and a trade relationship to be science-based whether it's corn or whether it's soybeans or whether it's cotton or whatever it is. Um, if, you, uh, if you are creating a, uh, a concern about the safety uh, or the effectiveness of a particular technology based on culture, um, that's, you know, that's an issue. That, that undermines the whole trading process. So I think uh, the point of this is that we've started a consultation. The point of it is that we want to make sure that there is an exchange of information um, in the hopes that we ultimately get to a better place uh, than we are today. And if not, we'll just continue the process, which is why the USMCA was an improvement over NAFTA, because it creates this process. The announcement from the USTR did not mention corn or any crop specifically. When pressed on if this included other crops, Secretary Vilsack had this. Well, I, I think uh, th- there is an underlying issue here uh, with the decree, when the decree basically uh, restricts or prohibits the ability of, of biotech white corn, for example, to be used in products in Mexico, that's a problem because it's, in our view, that is not science-based. 
and, and the foundation of our uh, approach to trade is science-based, rules-based system. It's the only way you can have a trading system that has the predictability and certainty that you need. If you allow culture, if you allow other factors to be uh, considered uh, in that trading relationship, well, shoot, you, I mean, you wouldn't have a trading relationship. And that, that wouldn't just be Mexico. Uh, that would be our conversations with our friends in Europe, for example. So it's important. This is an important principle for us, uh, I think, to, to, to say to Mexico and to the rest of the world, we're very serious about this. We think it's fundamental, uh, and we're not, you know, it's not something that can be compromised. Um, you know, I, the, this is, uh, having said all of that, it's an important trading relationship between the two countries. Clearly, uh, the Mexican livestock industry, roughly 66% of their livestock feed is connected to U.S. corn production, which obviously is a pretty significant market, and it's an important market for our corn growers, but it's also an important market for Mexican livestock producers and for consumers in Mexico. Um, and so uh, the, the hope and belief is that we'll continue to have a solid, uh, friendly trading relationship, uh, that there will be issues that crop up from time to time in any relationship. That's why you have a mechanism, um, and, uh, and that's why you, you, you use the mechanism to resolve the differences. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, the American National Cattle Women met during the recent cattle industry convention in New Orleans, and during that event, they elected Pam Griffin, a cow-calf producer from Arizona, as the new president. I recently caught up with Pam, and we discussed her thoughts about the upcoming year. Well, Pam, I guess, first of all, congratulations, new ANCW president. And for those who don't know you, give us a little history. Let's talk about you and the cattle industry. Well, I actually grew up on what I would consider a hobby farm. Both of my parents left the agricultural industry, and I married a rancher. So <laughs> I had to be a quick study. I decided I wanted to start my own cow-calf operation, mainly going into local beef. So I had to do that. My husband's busy with his own family's ranch, so he did pick out my heifers for me. But I felt along with the purchase of the heifers came a larger obligation, so I began being involved in my county, and then I went to state, and then I became region director of American National Cattle Women, and now I'm president. So fantastic. Obviously, you've had a chance to follow in the footsteps of, well, Evelyn Green from Alabama and now Reba Mazak from Florida. And so uh, you, you've had a chance to really see a couple other ones in action. What are you thinking about now for the year upcoming? What would you like to see happen here in your reign as president? I think we need to be consistent. Um, we are going to do a little more youth outreach for our younger folks because they are our future. And I think just continuity throughout. I think uh, cattle women are extremely important. 37% of all owned, operated, or managed agricultural businesses now are women. So it's very important that we all be involved. Obviously, there's a lot of things you all do throughout the year, but uh, how important is it for women that are involved in the cattle industry to be a part of ANCW? Extremely important. We have a place for everybody, whether you want to be extremely active or not active. Membership is, is just vital to all of our organizations. And when we go out to represent you, we need those numbers to be effective for people to listen to us. So if you'd rather just pay your dues, we appreciate that. We're thankful for that, and we'll accept that as well. 
give us an idea for somebody that's interested in their own state, wherever they may be, how can they learn more about it then? Well, I think if you get involved in your county cattle women, that's important. Then there's always state organizations. You can go to that level and be involved in both. It's, it's just vital to be involved in both of those. And national is tremendously important because that's where we get into the legislative issues where we can influence and make a difference. For somebody that would like the more information, you have a website, though, too. Yes, we do. You can go to ancw.org. There's a lot of information on there, a lot of educational materials. Feel free to peruse it and join. Again, that was new ANCW President Pam Griffin. You can learn more on their website, ancw.org. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. GMOs? Genetically engineered? Bioengineered? What's what? Well... GMO stands for Genetically Modified Organism. It's the common term many people use for foods created through a process scientists call genetic engineering. And you'll start seeing bioengineered on some food packages to let you know the product or some of its ingredients come from GMOs. Feed your mind with more GMO knowledge on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. What's in a name? Court cases and a bit of trouble when it comes to cheese. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. The National Milk Producers Federation, the U.S. Dairy Export Council, and other industry stakeholders prevailed in their battle to protect generic cheese names in the U.S. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld prior court decisions finding the term Gruyere is a generic term for a type of cheese. The decision should end attempts by Swiss and French groups to take away a common food name through a U.S. certification mark registration. The court said when people enter stores and ask for a Gruyere, they mean a type of cheese, not a cheese produced in the Gruyere regions of Switzerland and France. The Fourth Circuit found the evidence of that to be so one-sided that there is no genuine issue as to any material fact, and opposers may prevail as a matter of law. The decision reinforces that generic terms like Gruyere refer to types of food, regardless of where it's produced. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Trusts are a popular part of an estate plan for many people. They also come in different forms. Some take effect during life and can be changed whenever the grantor desires. Other trusts also take effect during life but can't be changed when desired, or at least not as easily. If your estate plan includes an irrevocable trust, can you change the trust if your circumstances or the law changes? What if there was a drafting error that wasn't discovered until after the trust was executed? Decanting involves distributing the assets of one trust to another trust that has the terms that the grantor desires and without the terms that the grantor no longer wants. 
The ability to decant comes from either an express provision in the trust or a state statute or state court opinions. Presently, over 30 states have adopted decanting statutes and a handful of others, such as Iowa and Kansas, allow trust modification under common law. Some of the courts have determined that decanting is allowed based upon the notion that the trustee's authority to distribute trust corpus means that the trustee has a special power of appointment which allows the trustee to transfer all or part of the trust assets to another irrevocable trust for the same beneficiaries. If you have an irrevocable trust, you just might be able to change it if you need to. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Commodity and financial markets don't like uncertainty. Both are facing a fair amount of that. I'm Mark Oppold, and this is the Bottom Line Report for Wednesday, March 8th, brought to you by AgriLiquid. Fed Chairman Powell did little to lift the veil of uncertainty yesterday, appearing before the Senate Banking Committee. In fact, seemed to be preparing traders, corporations, consumers for higher interest rate hikes deeper into the year. Traders dealing in interest rate futures now see a 1 in 4 chance of a 50-point rate hike at the March 21st-22nd meeting. Recent low in the Dow is 32,656. That happened on February 28th. That'll be on the radar for many, but 33,000 will be a psychological level before that. Today's crop report may help clear some uncertainty in the grain trade, but soybean and wheat trends still remain bearish in our view. Corn, soybean, wheat, and sorghum producers meeting in Orlando, Florida. Commodity Classic starts tomorrow. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day. The latest news from the end-of-February U.S. drought monitor was significant. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey explains why. Looking at the specific numbers for the week ending February 28th, U.S. drought coverage, 38.46% of the country. That is down from 42.65% at the end of January. So we did see a greater than four percentage point reduction during the month of February, continuing that trend since late October, early November. If you look at all coverage of color on the map, D0, which is yellow, and then your drought colors, D1 through D4, we saw a drop from 61.59% to exactly 55%. So a 6.59% decrease in coverage of all categories that includes abnormal dry well past the previous record of 68 weeks set during the drought of 2012-13. All of the stormy weather that we've been seeing starting back in November and lasting all through the winter and now into the early spring, finally having a notable effect on U.S. drought coverage. A near record peak of over 63% of the nation was covered in some form of drought in late October. So in that time, we have seen well over 20% of the country erased from drought coverage. Delving into the U.S. drought monitor for the period ending February 28th, U.S. drought coverage, 38.46% of the country. That is down from 42.65% at the end of January. So we did see a greater than four percentage point reduction during the month of February, continuing that trend since late October, early November. And if one looks at the various ranges and categories of drought on the drought monitor map, we saw a drop from 61.59% to exactly 55%. So a 6.59% decrease in coverage of all categories that includes abnormal dryness. Rippy adds, while significant nationwide
total shrinkage of drought coverage is reported. We still have some significant drought lasting and persisting in parts of the Great Plains. Specifically, states in the Central and Southern Plains. We still see more than half of Kansas, 52.4% covered by extreme or exceptional drought. That's the highest number in the nation. That is followed by Nebraska, just over 40% extreme to exceptional drought coverage at the end of February, and Oklahoma at 36.6% in D3 to D4. And while most states have seen modest improvement in drought coverage month over month. Texas is heading the other direction. Even though the extreme to exceptional drought coverage is only 12.3 percent at the end of February, that does represent an increase from the end of January of 7.9 percent. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. Routine diagnostic testing can help producers figure out what's working. Dr. D.L. Stepp is a professional services veterinarian for Beringer Ingelheim and talks about the benefits of diagnostic testing for parasites. We can find out where you are as a baseline for your individual operation and then also to be able to measure whether or not the expected performance or efficacy of your deworming program is at the level you would like. Potentially, identifying with your diagnostics the particular types of parasites that might be impacting your operation and that can also be maybe related a little bit to age or phase of production of cattle that the owners will be working with and also it might be able to give an indication whether or not we need to kind of adjust the deworming program to fit that particular operation. He says there are a couple of diagnostic tests that will be beneficial for producers and veterinarians fecal egg count and what we do on that, it will give a number of eggs per gram and we use this in what they call a fecal egg count reduction test. So that means you collect some samples at the time of deworming and then depending upon the class of dewormer being administered, you collect some follow-up samples within two to four weeks depending on the type of product following the administration and then you calculate a reduction in those egg counts and that will be a reflection within that population of how the particular deworming program is performing. Step talks about the second recommended diagnostic test what they refer to as a copra culture. And that is in the lab, they will take the eggs and they will actually hatch them out. And from hatching them out, qualified technician or veterinarian can actually look at what species of internal parasite is the most prevalent or the different species that are involved in that particular population of animals. And then again, working with your veterinarian, you can take the results of those tests 
test so that you can interpret them for that particular operation. There are other steps producers can take to get the most out of their deworming programs. Consider combination treatment using two or more dewormers from different drug classes that have different modes of action that can result in better reduction of eggs or parasites and also decrease potential resistance. Another thing is potentially talk about refugia, something we're trying to get additional data on in cattle, but it's where a certain percentage of the animals are not administered a dewormer product, and that will allow a dilution effect in the environment of some potentially resistant parasites. Another thing is is management aspects, pasture management. Make sure that there's plenty of grass available for the animals to graze on, but also not to overgraze where it's harder on the normal grasses to grow up, but also we can get some noxious plants that may not be as healthy for the animals. No matter the protocol you choose, always follow the product label. Again, that's Dr. D.L. Stepp of Beringer Ingelheim. Chad Smith reporting. The latest news from the end of February U.S. drought monitor was significant. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey explains why. Looking at the specific numbers for the week ending February 28th, U.S. drought coverage, 38.46% of the country. That is down from 42.65% at the end of January. So we did see a greater than four percentage point reduction during the month of February, continuing that trend since late October, early November. If you look at all coverage of color on the map, D0, which is yellow, and then your drought colors, D1 through D4, we saw a drop from 61.59% to exactly 55%. So a 6.59% decrease in coverage of all categories that includes abnormal drought. Well past the previous record of 68 weeks set during the drought of 2012-13. All of the stormy weather that we've been seeing starting back in November and lasting all through the winter and now into the early spring, finally having a notable effect on U.S. drought coverage. A near record peak of over 63% of the nation was covered in some form of drought in late October. So in that time, we have seen well over 20% of the country erased from drought coverage. Delving into the U.S. drought monitor for the period ending February 28th, U.S. drought coverage, 38.46% of the country. That is down from 42.65% at the end of January. So we did see a greater than four percentage point reduction during the month of February, continuing that trend since late October, early November. And if one looks at the various ranges and categories of drought on the drought monitor map, we saw a drop from 61.59% to exactly 55%. So a 6.59% decrease in coverage of all categories that includes abnormal dryness. Rippy adds, while significant nationwide total shrinkage of drought coverage is reported, we still have some significant drought lasting and persisting in parts of the Great Plains. Specifically, states in the Central and Southern Plains. We still see more than half of Kansas, 52.4%, covered by extreme or exceptional drought. That's the highest number in the nation. That is followed by Nebraska, just over 40% extreme to exceptional drought coverage at the end of February, and Oklahoma at 36.6% in D3 to D4. And while most states have seen modest improvement in 
drought coverage month over month. Texas is heading the other direction. Even though the extreme to exceptional drought coverage is only 12.3% at the end of February, that does represent an increase from the end of January of 7.9%. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. How are GMO plants made? First, scientists look for a desired trait in a plant, animal, or even bacteria. It could be a trait like resistance to drought, insects, or viruses. Then they copy the gene that contains that trait and insert it into the DNA of the plant they want to improve. Scientists then grow that plant to see if it adopts the desired trait. Feed your mind with more GMO facts on FDA's website. For today's interview segment, we take a listen to the latest episode of Farmside Chat, where American Farm Bureau President Zippy Duval talks about training the next generation of ag leaders with Agriculture Future of America. It's always fun to talk about young people and trying to find what stirs their uh, their uh, their nature up to want to be part of agriculture. So before we talk about the other young people, tell us a little bit about your journey that brought you to AFA and um, and 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 uh, and a little bit about your background. Yeah, uh, gladly. So uh, I actually ended up here by accident. Um, we, we talk to young people today at AFA about your network as a personal asset. So as valuable to you as anything you own, land or equipment or you know financial investments, people, your network can be really valuable to you. And that's candidly how I ended up at AFA. I, uh, I'm uh, like a lot of young people today, I'm a generation removed. So I'm the youngest in my family. My parents uh, sold the farm before I really remember it. And I grew up in a city, Springfield, Missouri. Uh, went to college, didn't really know what I was doing. I was uh, uh, an athlete in college, but um, got started in higher education fundraising, uh, worked in some nonprofit settings and in fundraising and communication roles and was helping my church raise money and retire in debt and some other things. And a lady on that committee knew Russ Weathers, who was the founding executive of AFA and said, hey, he's looking for somebody. I think you ought to connect. And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to love to connect. And so he and I had lunch and a week later I, I got the job at AFA. And what's interesting about it, I always thought I'd end up back in higher education. I love being around college students. Um, I did work for some social service organizations and, and saw like the real impact of, of the mission, you know, in, in action. And AFA is really a kind of a hybrid, a blend of those two environments. So we're really close to the action and the mission that we get to live out every day. And we get to work with amazing college students, but we're just not on a college campus. We don't have that kind of structure and in some cases bureaucracy. And that's kind of nice to, to have the freedom to operate like that. But it's just a really interesting blend. Um, we got a lot of people on our staff that do have strong ag backgrounds. But in the grand scheme of things, we're kind of a human development organization. Uh, we're not teaching, you know, physical or, or technical skills uh, around food and agriculture. That's what the experts do. Uh, it's what their campuses do. We're teaching young people about uh, what it's like to transition into work 
and uh, give them life skills. And uh, we call them competencies. Some people call them soft skills. And so it's just a really fun, fun place to be at. And, and kind of, again, a, a hybrid of, of my background and working in higher education and other meaningful nonprofits. So yeah, fun journey, just kind of by accident. And uh, through, through the network is how I ended up here. Well, sometimes what happens by accident is the best things of our life. That's right. Uh, I've, got, I've got several examples in my life like that because, you know, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be president of Georgia Farm Bureau and then go on to be president of American Farm Bureau. I just thought I was going to farm all my mm-hmm. life. You know? uh, so you never know where life's going to take you, but those relationships you build is what carries you to the next place that God wants you That's to right. And, uh, and that is that is such a valuable thing. So we just signed a memorandum of understanding with your organization uh, and that means so much to us because we are really making an extra effort to do re- outreach to people to bring them to to our organization so that they can uh, be part of our volunteer engaged volunteer members to advocate for agriculture in the future and in that in doing that we do a lot of leadership development uh, we work side by side with FFA and 4-H and now with manners and now with the agriculture future of America. Uh, so tell us what that uh, what that M- MOU means to you. Well, likewise, it means a great deal to us. Uh, anytime we can formalize partnerships, it's a it's a great day, and we appreciate your all support. Uh, we've got some team members on uh, on your staff that are uh, alumni of ours, been involved with our organization, so they can uh, help us bring it to life. But you know, we're only 26 years old, so we're relatively young uh, as an organization, and so. Um, just selfishly on its surface, we don't like being a best kept secret. So, you know, to formalize this relationship and have, you know, your organization be able to share more of the experiences that we can provide um, is really valuable to us. So that um, we also know historically, we've had a lot of people involved in our organization that were part of Collegiate Farm Bureau. And so there's just some natural connections that were already in place. And so now we're just figuring out how we can more formally serve um, your members, uh, those involved with our organization. And again, selfishly, it's nice to have more people know about us and so that they can talk about uh, the opportunities that we provide to their kids, uh, you know, students that they serve, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so, yeah, it'll be a great opportunity to just, uh, you know, uh, figure out how we can continue to support young people together. That's the big thing. So does AFA have a relationship with FFA and 4-H and Manners, and, and how does all that come together? Well, uh, for starters, I would say we don't track this, but probably 80 plus percent of young people that we serve are probably alumni of 4-H and FFA. Uh, we're heavily involved in one of those organizations. We see it all the time in the applications that they put forward. Uh, we don't, again, formally track it, but I just know naturally there's a, we're kind of the next step in the educational continuum, if you will. Um, and so we're actually working to formalize uh, our partnerships with FFA and Mainers right now because we do have a lot of uh, overlap um, with FFA, for instance. You know, they uh, obviously are promoting uh, things like what we provide to their alumni as they go off into college and into the real world. Um, we leverage relationships like FFA or Teach Ag uh, from an education perspective because a lot of students that we're serving do have an interest and going into the classroom. Um, And so uh, we're trying to help 
build that bridge for a student to see, you know, what that journey looks like. So that's how we leverage the relationship with FFA with Mainers. Um, again, they're kind of all along the continuum from junior Mainers in the, in the grade schools all the way up through college. And so we probably have more overlap in how we support each other in, in the collegiate space. So for instance, we are always at each other's uh, events. Uh, so they'll come to our national leaders conference. I'll be at their national meeting here in a couple of months. Um, we have a lot of students that participate in both organizations, so we have some overlap in our student leadership. Um, so we're always promoting how uh, students can be involved in either of our organizations. And we did this a number of years ago, uh, then COVID happened, but we're going to get back into it. We're going to work with our leadership to figure out how we do some joint uh, meetings together. So our leadership and their leadership. Uh, we've got a national student advisory team, which is a 10 member team that plans and facilitates our national conference. They've got uh, a, a similar leadership structure. They've got more professionals involved in their leadership as well, but um, looking for some opportunities where we can do some joint meetings and figure out how we more formally collaborate. But uh, yeah, great friends. Uh, obviously, we're all in the same same boat of lifting young people up. Um, and so try to support uh, the organizations any way we can. Again, this was just the portion of the podcast. To listen to the full episode, visit fb.org. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. USDA proposes new requirements for the product of USA label. The Department of Agriculture on Monday released a proposed rule with new regulatory requirements to the voluntary product of USA label claim. The proposed rule would allow the voluntary product of USA or made-in-the-USA label claim to be used on meat, poultry, and egg products only when they are derived from animals born, raised, slaughtered, and processed in the United States. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says, quote, These proposed changes are intended to provide consumers with accurate information to make informed purchasing decisions. Vilsack announced the proposal of the National Farmers Union Annual Convention in San Francisco earlier this week. NFU President Rob LaRue says, quote, This voluntary effort is a strong step and a strong base for permanent and mandatory country of origin labels soon. However, the National Condiments Beef Association responded, saying, quote, Simply adding born, raised, and harvested requirements to an already broken label will fail to deliver additional value to cattle producers and it will undercut true voluntary, market-driven labels that benefit cattle producers. NAFB contributed to that report. The University of California Hansen Agricultural Research and Extension Center is moving to a new location. Hansen Rec has been located on the historic Faulkner Farm in Santa Paula for the past 25 years and had been the smallest of the nine recs across the state at 27 acres. 
The facility has been the site of popular school field trips, 4-H programs, and numerous research trials on crops and landscape plants. The UC acquired a 114-acre farm property in Camarillo back in December, which will serve as Hanson Rec's new home. Moving structures and equipment from Faulkner Farm will take place over the next six months. Initial plans for the new Hanson Rec facility include offices, conference rooms, laboratories, greenhouses, a demonstration kitchen, and indoor and outdoor education areas. The new research and educational facility that will be built has an estimated opening date as early as 2027. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Ag Biotech, the focus of USMCA consultation requests. On Monday, the U.S. announced it is requesting technical consultations with Mexico through the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement to resolve issues regarding agricultural biotechnology. USDA's Rod Bain talks with USDA Trade Representative's Office Chief Agricultural Negotiator Doug McCallop in this next report. One way the U.S. and Mexico could resolve ongoing issues regarding ag biotechnology and measures by the Mexican government concerning those products. That is the hope of our nation as it announced Monday it seeks technical consultations with Mexico conducted through the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement and its Sanitary and Phytosanitary Measures Chapter. As U.S. Trade Representative's Office Chief Ag Negotiator Doug McCaleb recently explained regarding this request and similar efforts with other nations. These are not things that we are asking for a new commitment or a new promise, but instead it is something that we believe countries have already agreed to when they put their name next to following risk assessments, following science. And so it is our expectation that countries are able to live up to those commitments that are already in place. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.